Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, we will continue our discussion with Douglas Holtz-Aiken, president of the American Action Forum, on the ongoing impact and response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Doug, how's your past week been? Great week. How are you doing? Another fun week. Ready to jump right into things. So before we get into, you know, COVID-19 pandemic related news, of course, the big sad story of the week is the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, Now the conversation in Washington is, of course, moving towards a replacement to the Supreme Court. Um, How might this affect the work of Congress um, that they have to get done over the next couple of weeks? I I don't think it's going to affect the you know, funding the government, uh, a so-called continuing resolution or CR that would avoid a government shutdown. Um, they, they seem to have reached agreement. Um, they voted in the House and, and they'll uh, get that out of the Senate. The president will sign it. I think the real impacts uh, show up down the road a little bit. In particular, there's the potential for a decision on the, the court case against the Affordable Care Act and the, the constitutionality of the individual mandate. Um, if, in fact, the court would strike down the individual mandate and rule that it's not severable from the rest of the law, then the entire uh, ACA would be invalidated. And then Congress would have some real work to do. I mean, Mm -hmm. there is no way uh, that we could imagine simply getting rid of it. Um, There there are lots and lots and lots of things in the ACA that people have come to rely on that are built into the healthcare system that are popular in a bipartisan fashion. And there will be enormous pressure then for Congress to quickly uh, put back in place those provisions. And, and so that that's real work. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the CR, I saw over the weekend that they that they have come to some sort of a bipartisan agreement in the House, uh, at least. Um, is that translating to the Senate that they're going to quickly get get that done? Or is this? Yeah, I, 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 I don't see any bumps in the road at this point. Uh, it should go through the Senate. You know, everything takes longer in the Senate. That's, you, you know, that's a rule of thumb. And so it, it's, it'll make its way through the process. And I don't see any real shutdown threats on the horizon. Good news. Um, so let's move into the uh, story that seems to never go away, uh, and that's the COVID-19 pandemic. You testified on Wednesday about the impact of the pandemic on insurance coverage. It makes sense that potentially the uninsurance rate would rise because of the recession caused by the pandemic. But what does the data tell us? So it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, uh, so re- remember that we lost 22 million jobs in March and April. We lost 20 in April alone. Um, and in, at the time, uh, many people, myself included, I, I wrote a short paper with, with Tom Lee about sort of the potential for uh, insurance losses because of those, those layoffs. Uh, so about half of those uh, layoffs would have been uh, on employer-sponsored insurance, uh, roughly. And so you can imagine the up around being 10 million workers uh, potentially losing their insurance. And that, that's an enormous disruption. About, there are about 30 million people without insurance, 26 going into the pandemic. And, and so, you know, you're picking up something that looks like a, a third, um, and, and that, that'd be a big problem. Now, anyone who is on individual coverage already in the Affordable Care Act marketplaces or on Medicaid or, um, you know, Medicare, a layoff doesn't affect their insurance status. It's really the employer-sponsored insurance crowd. Um, and, and, Lots of people did estimates, and we've seen estimates as high as 27 million people uh, from the Kaiser Family Foundation, estimates down around 5 million um, from the Economic Policy Institute. Um, and so everyone's sort of looking. Uh, as it turns out, um, 
people who lose their insurance um, have some other places to go. Like many people might have a spouse who's, who's insured, and they just simply switch to uh, being covered by their spouse's insurance. Um, you know, you can go to the Affordable Care Act uh, exchanges and and go buy an individual policy, things like that. Uh, so, so we really do need some data to resolve what actually happens on the ground. Um, in what I think is a, just a fantastic um, experiment in uh, real-time helping policymakers, the Bureau of the Census started in April something called the Household Pulse Survey. And every week they, they do online this sort of surveying of households, their employment uh, status, their earnings, whether they've had diminished earnings, um, and, and all sorts of uh, uh, aspects of their lives, uh, food and nutrition, and health insurance. Um, so we we have these questions that that ask: Are you do you have health insurance or not? Where do you get it? Private, public, um, and and that started um, in in April, late late April, twenty third, I think. Uh, it's continued through August thirty first. That's the most recent data. And if you just look at the endpoints, beginning and end, um, what you find out is the fraction of the population that's uninsured has gone down by six tenths of a percent. And that's taking it at face value. I, I think the better interpretation is it's sort of noisy weekly data and it's a new sample. It, it looks roughly unchanged. Like there's no drama out there um, because of the, the pandemic. And that that's a pretty surprising result. I mean, it, it really is. And um, one possible explanation is they started in late April and maybe everyone lost their uh, insurance before then. And so we're just missing that. Um, but I don't think so. Most of the April layoffs were initially advertised as temporary. That, that wouldn't have uh, cost them their insurance necessarily. They may turn out to be permanent now as companies rethink the duration of this uh, health event. But, you know, I, I think the really surprising result of this this testimony was that so far, this is the, the dog that didn't bark. We keep waiting to find out uh, what happened. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts about why that might be? Other than you know, possibly missing it started in April, so possibly missing it. Uh, I'm not really sure. I'll be honest. I, I think, I, I think we know one part of the explanation is that a lot of the layoffs were among people who did not have insurance to begin with, right? That the sort of um, restaurant workers, the the sort of um, retail clerks, a lot of the hotel staffs. Uh, these are parts of the world where employer-sponsored insurance is pretty thin, and so you know, a lot of people didn't have insurance before, don't have insurance now. And um, uh, that's that's important um, for one of the things that came up in the hearing again and again. Um, there is something uh, known as a special enrollment period that, that you could declare and allow people to go to uh, the ACA exchanges and, and enroll in the middle of uh, what is normally a plan year. Um, that matters for people who don't have insurance at the beginning of the pandemic. If you had insurance, and you lost it because you got laid off, you were automatically allowed to go uh, enroll in a plan in the ACA. But if you didn't have insurance, you in principle would have to wait till the next um, uh, sign-up period late in the year. And so some states have, uh, who run their own exchanges have, have uh, had special enrollment periods, California in particular, to get people in. A lot of people are calling on the Trump administration to provide a special enrollment period uh, to make sure that people in the middle of a pandemic who, for whatever reason, unwisely, you know, whatever, didn't know, uh, just didn't get health insurance, and now it seems like a good idea if they did. So that's one of the issues that's, that's up in the air at the moment. Right. 
So for those people that were calling for the Trump administration to do something, is there room for a policy response for anybody that's being becoming uninsured because of the pandemic? So this is, uh, I think, the, the test of the ACA. The whole point of the ACA was to have uh, a source of insurance that was independent of employers. And if you are now uninsured because of a layoff, you can go there and, and buy policies. And so this is, you know, the rubber meets the road now. And we find out whether whether that works. As I said, the only issue associated with that is whether you want to open up the possibility of people who didn't have insurance already. That, that's the only issue there. Some people will go on Medicaid. Like their incomes will be low enough that they'll they'll go the Medicaid route. Um, you know, there is some talk of providing subsidies to individuals for what's known as COBRA coverage, continuing your employer insurance by having you pay for it. Um, COBRA was subsidized somewhat uh, in the, the last recession, in the Great Recession. Um, there wasn't a lot of take up of that subsidy. People didn't take advantage of that very much, but Congress might go there again. The real advantage to that is it allows you to hold on to the same insurance, which means the same network of providers. If you pick the doctor and you, you pick that plan because of the doctor in the hospital, all that continues. And, and if you go get an ACA policy, you'd have to be in probably a new network with, with some new providers. So there's a slight advantage, I think, to continuing with the COBRA, but that's not been a particularly effective option in the past. And then the Trump administration did a rulemaking um, uh, uh, about a year ago on these short-term limited duration plans, which used to be only about, about um, uh, three months, and, and now they can be renewed for a longer period. And you might see people go and buy one of those as well. There's a there's a, a sort of pretty big partisan divide about whether those are a good idea or not. D Democrats really prefer people to have comprehensive, you know, gold-plated insurance, which is more expensive. A lot of these plans aren't that. They are um, they, they cover some things and not others. You do actually have to read and know that the things you care about are covered, and but they're they're much cheaper as a result. Mm -hmm. Okay, so as I mentioned, you testified on this issue to Congress, so you have a, a vantage point that not many of us have, being that you got to interact with members of Congress on this issue. What is their attitude towards this issue, based off of what you heard on I think Tuesday, or was it what it was Wednesday? Yeah, it, it was it was Wednesday, and it was at the Health Subcommittee of the Energy and Commerce Committee in the House. And so, this is uh, a topic that gets picked by the the majority, so the Democrats convened this this hearing. And um, it's a big committee; it took four hours uh, the the hearing. Um, and you know, you really got um, uh, one clear theme, which is just the. Here we go again on the Affordable Care Act. You know, the Supreme Court might strike it down. Democrats decrying that possibility. Uh, Republicans reminding Democrats that not everything about the ACA is uh, the greatest thing since sliced bread. I have literally testified about 20 times in front of the Energy and Commerce Committee or one of its subcommittees on the ACA. And that was hauntingly familiar and tedious. Um, so that wasn't great. Then there's the issue of the pandemic and people losing their insurance. And, and what do we do? Um, there, there, I think it, it really comes down to how aggressive do you want to be in recruiting people who are uninsured prior to the pandemic and, um, you know, strategies for doing that. What does it take? All right. Well, so I want to end our conversation today with a couple of questions on the progress on the coronavirus vaccine um, or potential a variety of those vaccines. I picked up a great piece from Christopher Holt, AAF's director of healthcare policy, in his weekly checkup last week, where he discussed expectations around the vaccine. He made some 
some somewhat counterintuitive point that the vaccine will not end the pandemic. You know, we've heard a lot of news stories talking about how once the vaccine comes out, we'll be able to, you know, be back to normal. Do you agree with this analysis and walk us through what he's talking about here? I think he's right. Um, think of the extreme version of this. Suppose you got a vaccine and no one got vaccinated. Well, you've made no progress whatsoever. And so a threshold concern is people's uh, confidence in the, the safety and the efficacy of the, the vaccines. Um, we have seen uh, polling data that suggests, you know, a third of Americans would, would be confidently willing to take the vaccine. Uh, roughly another third would be like, show me, convince me. And, and a third are just sort of dead set. No, I, I'm not going to do it. That That's pretty trouble. Um, so, so there's a, uh, I think a real public education job that the FDA and uh, Health and Human Services uh, in general are going to have to do to um, convince people that these uh, vaccines, and there are now four that are they're sort of real candidates, um, are safe and will do some good. Uh, so that's that's the threshold question. S- second issue is um, distribution of the vaccines. Um, you know, one of the promises made by the Trump administration, a very sensible one, is the vaccine is not going to cost you a dime. So that that seems great, except that it turns out in Medicare, uh, you cannot have Medicare pay for uh, something that is approved under an emergency use authorization, which is exactly what these vaccines would be doing. So they have to figure that out. I mean, that's that's an issue. And so they have some some real distribution issues. Uh, Then there's uh, sort of priorities. Um, Who goes first? Well, it makes sense that we want to take care of our national security um, uh, folks. So, you know. People on battleships and and that are, have had real exposures, and so you know you can imagine sort of Pentagon-related and, and security-related um, vaccination. On the domestic side, you can imagine you want to get the healthcare first responders all vaccinated. You want to please fire, you know. So there, there, there's got to be a way to get to those people or get them to a vaccine, and then you got to ramp up the production and get it to the. The, the remainder of the 320 million Americans who are out there, there have been no um, uh, trials yet on, on children. So there's no pediatric vaccination that's going to go on at, at first. So that, that's that's reality. And so in terms of the distribution, that's going to take time. So it's not like we get a vaccine, it, it goes, you know, the pandemic goes away. You have to get everyone vaccinated. And that's a, that's a real challenge. First, convincing them to get vaccinated. Second, getting it uh, out there and, and distributed broadly. And, and the last issue is uh, three of two, two of the big contenders are these vaccinations um, that have to be kept um, at extremely low temperatures and require two shots. You have to take it uh, a second one 30 days later. There's some obvious concern about making sure everyone does the follow up shot, doesn't mix and match, like get the first one from one vaccine, the second one from the other. Uh, who's going to keep track? What's the central database? going to look like that says, you know, will you get a reminder email? Like, how's that going to work? Uh, Johnson & Johnson just went into stage three trials with the vaccine that needs to be refrigerated, but not kept uh, at below zero and uh, is one shot. So that, you know, as time goes on, we're going to have more than one vaccine and they're going to have better and worse attributes. And they can also differ. We'll find out, but often they differ in their efficacy at eight by age and, you know, pre-existing conditions, stuff like that. We're going to have to learn a lot about these vaccines. So uh, that's a very long answer that says Chris is right. And 
This isn't like snapping your fingers. <laughs> I'm sure he'll be very happy to hear that. You put it on air that Chris is right. So I go through some of these, some of those issues and talk about a little bit more. As you mentioned, there was a couple of stories out uh, reporting that many are skeptical of this vaccine. I was actually stunned when I saw some of the polling that it was that high. I mean, I figured there would be some, but it, it seemed a little higher than I expected. Are there steps that the government and the Trump administration could take to ensure that people are confident in the safety of this vaccine? Um, I mean, public education is obviously paramount, but there are really two things going on. Uh, coming into the pandemic, there was already a well-identified anti-vaxxer movement of, of vaccine skeptics, and you know they're in the polling that you're seeing on on the uh, coronavirus vaccine. And then there are the missteps by the CDC and the, the FDA during the past year. Um, you know, CDC reversing itself on masks, uh, watching the rollout of the testing, uh, the FDA uh, rushing into uh, um, use a, a plasma treatment for the coronavirus uh, and, you know, overstating its efficacy, a, a press conference with the head of the FDA sort of badly misstating what it did. That's really shaken uh, some people. It, it has shaken healthcare providers in particular. That that's that to me the most troubling polling I've seen is healthcare providers saying, "Yeah, I'm not so sure I believe this." That's not good. So that that that's a big problem that needs to be fixed. The only way to fix that is to be super transparent about um, the vaccine trials and you know what exactly the data say, so that people outside the FDA can also examine those data and say, "Yeah, that's exactly right." And to to make it very clear that the the scientific community has vetted this for its safety, for its efficacy before you go forward. Um, anything less than that, I think, is just not going to fly. Um, now, now, the good news is th there's a particular set of uh, actors out there who have the resources to do this and um, care the most. And that's the drug companies themselves. No drug company wants to develop a vaccine which is then blamed for being the problem. Right. So they're going to work very hard to make sure that people understand the, the what they've done in testing the vaccine. People understand how it's uh, been safe and effective and, and, and will be something they should take. Mm -hmm. You don't think that there's not a big way that the government could could release something that would be potentially dangerous. It's not it's not that big of a possibility in your mind. I don't think the drug companies would apply for uh, use authorization with something that's dangerous. I mean, I, I think the, the, the scientists and the drug companies are working hand in glove to make sure that these vaccines are developed uh, as fast as possible, but are also safe and effective. So if, if there looks like there's a, a red flag, they're, they're just not going to go forward. And that's right. That's the right, right thing to do. Right. Right. OK, so last question on this topic for you. How quickly could a vaccine be rolled out? I mean, we've talked about Operation Warp Speed. The government has has started. What exactly might a rollout look like? Uh, no one knows for sure, but Operation Warp Speed is uh, development of the vaccine. So it's, let's get it through the FDA. It, that's its job. Sort of check the box, make sure it's safe and effective. Then comes uh, the distribution challenge. And, um, you know, the, the administration had the National Academy of Sciences uh, examine the World Health Organization's distribution plans and, and other people who thought about this and sort of who typically is prior, prioritized, who gets put at the end of the line. Um, all of that has to get settled. And then, you know, you have to 
to literally get the vaccine to people. In some cases, that's going to mean mobile units. Uh, in some cases, it's going to mean pharmacies can do it. I'll just go to my, go to, like with my seasonal flu shot, I'll go to the, to the pharmacy and get my get my shot. Um, there's there's a lot of the logistics, which are simply daunting logistical challenges. And then there's the payment issues, right? There are a lot of providers who like run clinics and people are going to come in and they're going to expect the vaccine to be free and, and the providers are going to have to somehow get it for free or get reimbursed and, and all that has to get sorted out. Mm-hmm. I think we'll have to leave it there for today. Thanks for another great discussion on on all this. Uh, what fun plans do we have coming up for the weekend? Um, the weekend, uh, this weekend is um, get the dog uh, groomed, right? So dog haircut, big, huge, uh, because next weekend I will take a week's vacation. We're going to go to the beach and take the dog for the first time. And we would prefer that uh, less sand come back with her than as opposed to more. So we're working on that. Good weekend. <laughs> Cleo and I have the same plans then, you know, got to get my, got to get my hair cut done. <laughs> yep. Are you going to the same beach that you went to back in uh, August? Uh, we're going to, to uh, the North Carolina beaches. We're going a little bit further south. We're not at the Outer Banks. We're down by uh, Wilmington at the Wrights Beach and, and Cure Beach. Sounds like a fun plan. Well, thanks for joining us as always. And uh, I look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode. Where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.